Hello, and welcome to the Alternate History Class Podcast. My name is Andrew, and here I explore alternate history through the lens of a history class from another timeline. Last week, we looked at how the Confederacy dealt with its newly freed slave population. This week, we're going to take a quick look at the calm before the storm that would be the Great as when we look at both nations. Today we will be starting with what the U.S. was doing from the turn of the century until the Great War. The first real thing of note that happened in the U.S. in this time period was on September 14th of 1901 when President McKinley attended the Pan-American Exhibition in Buffalo. He had a meet-and-greet with the public there, something that his security had some levels of concern about, but there wasn't any reason that McKinley himself saw to keep removing this from the schedule. So every time it was removed, he added it back on, something that would frustrate his head of security. This would turn out to be a mistake by McKinley, as Leon Cholgosh, a anarchist and former steelworker, shot President McKinley at this handshaking event. And then McKinley survived the bullet wound and recovered greatly. He had a bout of gangrene related to the bullet wound, but his doctors were able to catch it very quickly and amputate what was needed there. Now, it should be noted that this was the first attempted assassination of an American president. Uh, So this was a major shock to the public. It was something they had not even seriously considered. And due to his injuries, McKinley would suffer for the rest of his life from illnesses, from weakness. He would never be quite the same after the assassination attempt. But this led into the election of 1904. Now, there were several prominent candidates on the Republican side to face McKinley who had no plans to run for re-election at this point in time. But the two most prominent were William B. Allison and Vice President Roosevelt. Now, a large contingent of the Republican Party establishment did not like Roosevelt. As we, if you remember, the New York machine had put Roosevelt into the vice presidency to get him out of the way in many ways. Uh, and so in a highly contested 
Republican primary, Allison would become the Republican nominee, which would turn out to be a mistake for the Republicans, as it turns out third time was the charm for Williams Jennings Bryan, who was elected president as a socialist, the first socialist elected president. The socialists were the Workers' People's Party. They had rebranded to a simpler name to try to appeal better to the workers, especially in the Midwest and in the Steel Belt. The Democrats this time, though, did not back Brian, viewing that as a failure and not and not wanting to fall under the sway uh, of the socialists too much, wanting to maintain their independence as a party and would nominate uh, former Iowa Governor Horace Boise, who would finish a distant third due to the popularity of Bryan and Allison and Boise very much splitting the anti-Bryan vote, as it were. Now, the Bryan presidency was very much focused on improving labor relations and working on breaking up trusts, which would control an entire industry. This would become known as trust-busting later on. And in an attempt to improve relationships between laborers and businesses, they would, the socialist government would also push through a labor relations board. Now, as you may guess, the socialists winning the presidency did not go down well with the Republicans, who had largely dominated the presidency since 1880 and would like to gain it back. So most of the nation's Republicans would turn to a familiar face in Theodore Roosevelt, who had run for and become governor during this break of New York. This was in spite of the New York political machine. And in many ways, Roosevelt you know, busted them, passing many anti-corruption laws that would destabilize Tammany Hall's hold on power in New York City and make it so they would not be able to get in his way when he sought the 1908 Republican nomination, which he, with his fame and celebrity and seemingly boundless energy, would, would get. The socialists would renominate Brian. They had no reason not to. He was their first successful presidential candidate. While the Democrats would nominate Admiral George Dewey, but neither Brian nor Dewey could stand to the fame and the energy of Governor Roosevelt, who would go on to win the presidency in 1908. His first term would show the continuation of trust-busting, something that he didn't do as much of as Brian had, but something that he brought much more energy 
too than Brian ever realistically could have. That was just the nature of Roosevelt. Roosevelt would also see the coming storm with the rising tensions in Europe and, of course, with the United States wanting to reassert its dominance over the North American continent, if not the entire Western Hemisphere, he would increase military spending. He would even propose a canal to be built through either Nicaragua or the northern Colombian province of Panama, something that the Confederates would threaten with war if Roosevelt dared to start such a project for the United States. They didn't want to have to pay the United States tariffs or fees or tolls of any sort to use this, even though it would have been an extremely useful and much quicker route for both nations. But the Confederates did not want this to happen. Of course, this would also see the New Orleans crisis happen in 1909, uh, which we will get back to when we get to the Confederacy. Now, needless to say, Roosevelt's spirit, Roosevelt's energy, uh, and Roosevelt's policies earned him much popularity and he would easily defeat Democrat Alton B. Parker and Socialist Eugene Debs in the 1912 election. Now, 1913 would see a continued military buildup be the primary focus of legislation when it came to the Roosevelt administration, something that would prove to be very useful the next year. But let's jump to the Confederacy. Now, Wade Hampton, in his first turn, continued a repression of the newly freed blacks. He didn't do much of of anything in his first term. He kept things very much the status quo. This would be enough for him to defeat Jacksonian Murphy J. Foster in 1904. During his second term, much of what he did still maintained the status quo, but would see him also increase funding for the military. A decent amount of modernization, but not nearly enough to catch up to the U.S., but of course, the Confederate honor would not see it that way. They would see themselves as a superior fighting man. And while the U.S. could have all the fun toys and gadgets that it wanted, the Confederate chivalry and the Confederate fighting man would win the war when it came down to it. That was the thought and the mindset before the Great War. 
1908, Hampton did not seek re-election, and the governor of Virginia, Woodrow Wilson, would defeat Oscar Underwood, continuing the Whigs' dominance over the Confederate political system. Now, Wilson was was the most progressive uh, president the Confederacy would have. Without a doubt, before the Great War, you could argue, of the first half of the 20th century, his first term would see him pass what was viewed as a highly controversial bill in the Confederacy that would allow blacks to educate themselves. They were not going to be ever allowed to be educated by a white person. Um, But if their jobs required them to read, then someone had to teach them. So it was viewed as something that the blacks could do for themselves. You would also pass a couple antitrust laws and break up a couple of trusts, mostly focused around the railroad and shipping industries. He would continue to enforce segregation. And now we come back to the New Orleans crisis of 1909. Now, as you may remember, 1909 was the year that the Hamburg Agreement marked would be the next time that the U.S. could renew its lease in the port of New Orleans. Now, with tensions still being a bit high between the nations after the Hamburg Agreement, and as would be expected, the U.S. came in wanting friendlier terms, wanting to lower the amount they paid for each dock that they used. The Confederacy wanted no such thing. This was a decent money maker for the Confederacy. It was a decent money maker for the city of New Orleans. So there was no real desire in the Confederacy to see anything change. But Roosevelt would continue to push for what he would say were friendlier and more Christian terms, something that would attack Wilson's very brand of politics. Wilson was a, was a very much a morals-first kind of politician, uh, something that you hadn't really seen at that point, something that you see more of nowadays, people pressing their morals to do the right thing through government, something that is much more common nowadays. This would result in neither side being able to come to an agreement and the the leases in New Orleans would expire. 
and neither side looked to renew those leases. Um, because, again, they could not agree to terms. So most U.S. ships that were docked in New Orleans would move to Puerto Rico. Some would move further north to, to Philadelphia or Boston, while others would move all the way around to the West Coast. It just very much depended on where they normally did business, where they normally made those trips, would determine where they would go. But most eastbound ships went to Puerto Rico, and most westbound ships would dock in San Diego. Now, this did not cost either side any political capital, and Wilson would win re-election over Jacksonian Jared Y. Sanders Sr. And with the building tensions and seeing the U.S. starting to build up its military material, uh, Wilson would get the Confederate Congress to approve a small increase in military spending, but not more than Confederate pride would let them. Because, as we previously said, the Confederates fully expected that they could easily win any war against the United States. They'd done it before, and they would do it again. All right, that's where we'll cut this off. Now, I know many of you are expecting us to jump into the Great War next week. We're going to take a quick stop and look at the development of black culture in the Confederacy in the times between the Hamburg Agreement and the Great War. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Alternate History Class Podcast. I'd love to hear your feedback, so please leave a review. If you enjoy the show, give the show a follow on the platform you found it on, and share it with friends, family, or anyone you think would enjoy it. If you want to reach out, you can email the show at althisclass at gmail.com, or follow it on Twitter Alt His Class Pod. Tune in next week to see what happens as we journey down the path not taken.